welcome to episode 155 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. Now, Canada is building a hydrogen economy like many uh, countries are doing these days. It has a number of issues. One of them is building supply and demand at the same time. Furthermore, what does the regulatory regime look like? I'm going to be talking to Alex Barnes, who's a visiting research fellow at the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies, and he's the author of The European Union's Hydrogen and Gas Decarbonization Package, Help or Hindrance for the Development of a European Hydrogen Market, and let's see if we can't find some lessons for uh, for Canada and for some of the provinces that are looking at uh, undertaking hydrogen development. So welcome to the interview, Alex. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Maybe we should start with the EU Green Hydrogen Plan. Can you give us a bit of an overview of that, please? Yeah, sure. So the EU launched its EU hydrogen strategy back in 2020, but it got a real boost and a real sort of uh, rocket launch, as it were, thanks to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which caused a gas crisis in Europe. And effectively, they came out with their Repower EU targets, which was for 20 million tons of renewable hydrogen consumption by 2030. So that was doubling the the previous targets, as it were. And it's also part of a larger kind of framework, which is the Fit for 55 package, which is how the EU is going to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions by 55% by 2030. And so the EU's launched a whole slew of legislation and packages uh, in order to make that happen. Now, what kind of hydrogen are we talking about? Because there's uh, transporting hydrogen, as I understand it, is problematic. It's difficult if you're doing it by by pipeline. So, and we're talking here about decarbonizing the, well, hydrogen applications in hard to decarbonize sectors like long haul transport, uh, energy intensive industrial processes like steel manufacturing. So what kind of hydrogen are we talking about? Ammonia, methanol? Uh, chilled hydrogen, what are we talking about? Okay, well, that that's a really good question. There are two aspects to this. That 20 million ton target is for renewable hydrogen only. So that is hydrogen produced by electrolysis using renewable energy sources. Now, there's a whole, whole area of complication as to how you define renewable, but it specifically doesn't include hydrogen from like me, methane reforming with carbon capture and storage. It also doesn't include hydrogen, which is made from electrolysis using nuclear electricity. But that's because of the kind of the curiosities and the vagaries of how the Europeans approach things. So that's so you could have that non-renewable hydrogen on top of the 20 million target. The other thing is you hit the nail on the head about transporting hydrogen. The EU expects that of that 20 million tons, 10 million tons will be produced within the EU and 10 million tons will be imported. And of that 10 million tons imported, they think that 4 million tons could be in the form of ammonia or other derivatives. And so those other derivatives could be things like methanol, though you'd obviously have to make sure that the, the carbon molecule was sustainable, uh, or it could be synthetic fuels, uh, you know, synthetic hydrocarbons, or it could be liquid organic hydrogen carriers is, is, the, is the other thing. So there's a range of things that it could be. And the real reason I can't be more specific than that is because nobody's doing it yet. So nobody really knows what it's going to be. 
Is there a sense in in Europe that this is it, it, it's doable? The technology is there; it can do it at a cost uh, that is acceptable to the market. And the reason I ask is because there's a big debate uh, in North America around the various colors of hydrogen. So, yeah, we can produce blue, blue hydrogen from from methane with carbon capture and storage at around two dollars a kilogram. Uh, renewable hydrogen, green hydrogen using electrolysis, maybe six to $8 a kilogram. Uh, and it seems to me that the technology is changing so rapidly. And I mean, now I'm reading about, you know, uh, China beginning to scale up electroly uh, electrolyzer uh, manufacturing, which raises the issue of, you know, does green hydrogen maybe uh, become economic before 2030, which were the the previous estimates. What's your take on all of that? Oh, gosh, it really depends who you talk to. From a policymaker perspective, I think there is, they are basically betting that the technology can deliver. And the type of examples you'll hear quoted is how the cost of renewable generation like wind farms or PV fell so significantly. And of course, there's a lot in that. I mean, uh, the question will be how quickly the industry can scale up. I think, to be fair, nobody knows for certain. Uh, people in the industry, uh, everybody's for hydrogen because they recognize for certain applications, electrification simply won't work. So you're going to need some other form of energy vector and hydrogen is a pretty good bet. But I think there are so many different moving parts one of which is the cost of electrolyzers. But in Europe, the other thing is whether there's sufficient renewable electricity. So for example, for the 10 million tons that I said that was going to be produced in Europe, the commission says that will need roughly 500 terawatt hours of renewable electricity, basically solar and wind, because there's not going to be new hydro developed in Europe. And that 500 terawatt hours is approximately the same as to the existing total amount of solar and wind uh, electricity generated in the EU at the moment. So you're going to have to create that again. Oh, and by the way, you're also going to have to have lots of other renewable electricity because the economy overall is electrifying. So there is kind of things. Permitting is an issue. It takes a long time to permit um, a wind farm, for example. So Ursula van der Leyen, the EU president, said it can take nine years. So there are so many factors. I think what that says is that, you know, where if there's sufficient will, sufficient government support, et cetera, yes, it can be done, but it's but there's a lot to do. But on the other hand, you come from the other perspective. Well, what's the alternative to decarbonizing, uh, you know, industry or heavy transport, for example? And so that's 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 the balance. Is there a serious political commitment to hydrogen in Europe? Absolutely. Is there public support for paying the extra cost that will come with basically subsidizing uh, green hydrogen until it, you know, the, the the learning curves kick in, the costs come down and and it can be competitive with uh, methane steam reforming? And I wonder if this is analogous to Germany's support for solar in the 1980s and and how it was, you know, that market, subsidized market that helped the the China ramp up, uh, scale up its manufacturing of solar panels. Uh, it, it, what's your what's your take? 
Well, in, interesting enough, the example of how you know China kind of caught, cornered the PV market, you know, the solar panel market, is used as an example as to why Europe needs to fund industry. And so there are lots of that the EU has got quite a lot of funding programs in in, in place. Um, I think the other thing just to mention before I forget is on the blue hydrogen issue. Before the Ukraine crisis, blue hydrogen was favoured by some countries and not favoured by others. So, for example, Germany didn't really like it, though I was reading the other day that the leaked document says that, oh, well, maybe we will have to allow blue hydrogen. The issue for blue hydrogen production in Europe is the fact that we don't have enough gas. Well, <laughs> our gas supplies have been severely curtailed in the last year or so, thanks to thanks to the Ukraine crisis or more precisely Russia invading Ukraine and then stopping gas supplies. So that is, that is a, an, another issue. Whether that means that, uh, you know, Europe will import blue hydrogen from elsewhere, you know, we will see. I think one thing that is significant is that the carbon footprint standard for both blue hydrogen and or what they call low carbon hydrogen and uh, renewable hydrogen is the same. It's a saving of 70% against a fossil fuel comparator. So the door is open, even if the rhetoric might be less favorable to it. And I think that's just, I, I think the thing that will really drive it is practicalities and, you know, what gets lowest cost first. Longer term, I think the expectation is that renewable hydrogen will be the one that becomes more predominant. But as I say, you know, we're at the early stages of the industry. I want to get your take on the, there's a project on the East Coast of Canada uh, for a, a renewable energy, I think it's wind, combined with uh, electrolyzers and to create uh, hydrogen for the EU market. And it's I, I've seen a lot of skepticism amongst the, the experts that I'm connected with on social media because they say, well, look, you know, it's going to take a tremendous amount of energy to create uh, that green hydrogen. And it's not all that efficient. I think it's 60, 70% efficient. Then you're going to ship ship it, put it on a, a ship. You're going to lose some energy there. And then you're going to unload it at the importation terminal in Europe. And then you're going to ship it by pipeline. It's It seems like a very, very complex and costly process for the amount of energy that's going to finally arrive at the European customer. Is this pie in the sky or is it actually techn technically feasible and economic? Um, I think <laughs> it is It is technically feasible in the sense that we've seen liquid hydrogen shipped from Australia to Japan. We know ammonia can be shipped uh, very easily. I understand that people know how to crack ammonia back into hydrogen and and and, and nitrogen, et cetera. But you've put your, you've hit the nail on the head. It's all about the conversion costs and stuff like that. The proponents of importing hydrogen from outside the EU into the EU is that the costs of the renewables are so much cheaper everywhere. So they've been talking, the EU's been talking to Chile and they've been talking to Australia, which are an awful, awful long way away and further away than Canada, the East Coast of Canada. So that gives you some kind of idea. I think if one was being slightly more cynical, one would say that the the target of 20 million tons of renewable hydrogen, of which 10 million tons is imported, the 10 million tons is kind of a get out of jail free card. 
or it's like that old joke about the economist on the desert island assuming a can opener. It's like, oh, this is difficult. I'll make an assumption. That said, Germany, for example, through the H2 Global program is going around and tendering for hydrogen supplies. So I think it will come down to the willingness of governments to throw money at the problem. And I think we will see, you know, uh, a, a, a focus on, you know, which places have got the cheapest sources of, of renewables. And I think we'll also see that people, as people work with the technologies, if you look at the liquefied natural gas industry, you know, it's not a direct comparison, but the trains that liquefied natural gas started out quite small and now they're huge, uh, ditto the ships, et cetera. I mean, hydrogen is more difficult because it liquefies at minus 253, natural gas at minus 160. So it's a whole different ball game. But that's just to give you a say, as people start doing things, they get better at it and costs come down. So whereas the EU is assuming, like many governments are assuming, that there will be learning curves involved and, and they're prepared to subsidize the technology until it gets to the point where it's compet cost competitive. And we just, and I guess they hope that it arrives sooner than later. Yeah, abs absolutely. Basically all, all the studies I've seen assume that, you know, declining cost curve, you know, that learning, both learning effects and uh, economies of scale and, and, and all the rest of it. And and I think as as you can see from so many examples, whether it be phones or or or, or natural liquefied natural gas, you know, people get better at doing things. Fair enough. Well, let's talk about the uh, hydrogen and gas decarbonization package. Can you give us a brief overview of that, please? Sure. Well, as I mentioned, the EU put, uh, Commission has put forward a lot of legislative proposals, which are in the process of getting approved to meet this 55% reduction in emissions by 2030. And it's called the Fit for 55 package. And the hydrogen and gas decarbonization package is part of the 55 package. Now, other bits of the 55 package set targets for hydrogen. So a certain percentage of hydrogen used in industry must be renewable by 2030, for example. What the hydrogen and gas decarbonization package does is it sets the rules or will set the rules for hydrogen infrastructure. So pipeline storage and import terminals. And essentially what it does is it takes the model that the uh, EU ha has had in place for natural gas for some years, which is regulated third party access, what I think you call in North America, open access pipelines. It's overseen by a regulator or in, in the case of the EU national regulators, but equivalent of say like the FERC in, in the US. And there are terms and conditions as to how you access the capacity. So, and the reason why it does that is for the same reason like natural gas infrastructure is regulated, a concern that they don't want to have kind of monopoly hydrogen pipelines limiting the development of the hydrogen market. And there are some other things in there as well about whether you should blend hydrogen into natural gas pipelines and what limit you should do and so on and so forth. So what are some of the uh, the problems that you foresee? Uh, I mean, that's your paper uh, discusses at, at length some of the issues, some of the assumptions that that the the regulators are making. So let's start with the problems. what What are some of the problems you anticipate uh, that need to be solved or do you think will pop up? Okay, well, well, you kind of you kind of hit it uh, on the head right at the start of the interview about building up supply and demand at the same time. And then, of course, you've got the infrastructure 
and you've got to kind of make sure that the infrastructure develops at the same rate. And that's real tricky. So it's not just a, supply and demand is like a chicken and egg situation. Supply and demand and infrastructure is like either two chickens and one egg or, or two eggs and a chicken. You know, you, you've got to coordinate all three together. And one of the problems, the commission's proposals, I think, will work very well once the hydrogen market is up and running and once there is infrastructure in place. But because you're trying to coordinate supply, infrastructure and demand all at the same time and how you pay for it, having this regulated approach makes it more difficult for market players to manage risk. Because one of the ways they did it in the past was that whether it be the LNG industry or pipelines, you often had producers of gas and the buyers of the gas form joint ventures uh, either in terms of building the pipeline so that they could manage that timing process and manage the buildup of supply and the buildup of demand. And the EU rules won't allow that except for a very short period of time, up to 2030, which is nothing in terms of uh, pipeline economics. Um, now, the reason why you can do that in natural gas, have all these rules, uh, et cetera, is because the market's already there. And it, by the way, it's profitable as well. You don't need government subsidy to make natural gas work. It, there's enough value in the chain to pay for the infrastructure. So I, th I think that's one problem. Now, the commission are aware of this. I think it's just that they haven't allowed enough for all the uncertainties as to how quickly the hydrogen market will build up. Which goes back to what we were talking you know, earlier about, you know, will enough imports emerge? Will the EU be able to produce enough renewable electricity for the hydrogen, et cetera? A lot of other uncertainties. You know, there are always going to be people at the margins who say could either electrify their processes or go for a hydrogen based solution. It will depend on the relative costs, et cetera, at the time. And, you know, we don't know how that will that will pan out. I mean, I've, I've seen numbers that saying that actually e-fuels, synthetic hydrocarbons can make a lot of sense in a full life cycle sense compared to battery electric vehicles. I, I don't know. But depending on, you know, relative costs and regulations, et cetera, you can see that making a difference to the amount of hydrogen that is is required at the end of the day. So it sounds like from what I'm hearing, uh, Alex, is that. Uh... There's a tremendous amount of risk here. Just uncertainty breeds risk, and that breeds cost, yeah. and it breeds caution amongst amongst the, the industry players. And one of the ways that uh, Alberta, for instance, uh, is dealing with this is they've just put out a request for proposal for for uh, a, an industry player to build fueling infrastructure in the province. So it said, okay, here's how we're going to de-risk de this this situation. We're going to build the infrastructure ourselves. And it's not clear what they'll do with it once it's built. Whether over time they'll they'll sell it back to to industry, you know, maybe one of the pipeline companies or several of the pipeline companies. I guess that would be an option. Maybe they they operate it as a utility, you know. Some that's not clear yet, and, and I suppose they'll have to address it at some point. But it, is that the kind of approach that the EU is likely to take here, where the government just says, or governments say, okay, we're just going to will invest in some of this infrastructure and and lower the risk for the private sector. Yeah, no, I, I think that is definitely an option. And I'm trying to think because I saw something the other day on this and it might have been related to Germany. That might not happen. And I think that illustrates a really good point is that 
in the natural gas networks, they know that even if the people putting gas into the network, whether the gas comes from Russia or whether it comes from US LNG, the gas is going to be there and people demand it. Even if the people who are using the gas, you know, factories come and go, they know that they've got steady demand for gas and therefore steady demand for the infrastructure. With hydrogen, you have the uncertainties we spoke about earlier, particularly the buildup. Now, one way of managing it is, as I said, this kind of managing the risk where producers and consumers get together and they manage it themselves. And you have a lighter touch regulatory approach to allow them to bear that risk. But because that, whereas you could have an alternative approach, which is say, we're gonna have that regulation, but we'll give government support, whether that be revenue guarantees or indeed government ownership of, of the infrastructure. I mean, it's often forgotten that, you know, regulating pipelines, you know, one way of doing it is that the government simply owns them and takes on all the commercial risks. So I think that is that is definitely an option. Again, I think what we could see within Europe is, is different models, because although the, the overall framework is set by the EU, it's the member states who can decide how they do things within that framework in their own countries. And that will depend on, you know, everything from their budgets to how they see hydrogen to what their own priorities are. So I, th I think there are many ways of dealing with the risk. As I say, my concern with the EU proposals, the Commission proposals, is just that they probably haven't allowed enough time and flexibility for the build-up phase. Once it's there, yeah, I, th I think it's a great model because it's the model that's worked in natural gas and the natural gas market has coped remarkably well with losing a third of its supply. So, you know, I, th I think in that sense, uh, the, the proposals do work. I would imagine, uh, looking at it from the other side of the pond, that the uh, urgency created by Russia cutting off uh, Europe's natural gas supply, forty percent of the of demand, uh, that has that has to, you know, create some urgency for policymakers. Uh, what's your take on the repower EU and the EU's like the likelihood of that succeeding. And I know there's a lot of skepticism in the oil and gas market here. They say, well, you know, Europe's trying to electrify and is trying to switch over to low carbon fuels like hydrogen. But, you know, really, they're probably just going to be, you know, increasing imports of LNG for years and years and years and years, because we're skeptical of that electrification and, and low carbon fuels will work. Uh, what's your take on that? Okay, it's it's probably probably somewhere between the two because I I think one shouldn't underestimate you know the high level political commitment to the fit for fifty five and the broader decarbonisation targets. There is not the debate in Europe that there is say in North America about whether we actually have to do something about climate change. That said, and again you touched on this earlier about whether people are going to be willing to pay for it. We are in the phase now where the easier stuff has been done and it becomes increasingly difficult. Oh, and by the way, even the stuff that we should be doing, we're not doing as well as we should. I'll give you a very good example, energy efficiency. We should be doing a lot more to make sure our houses consume less energy, etc. Um, now, you'd think that an energy crisis would encourage that, and it has to some extent, but what do the EU uh, governments, the member states do? 
they rather than saying we're going to subsidize the people who really need it but let prices go to the natural level and we're going to pay for more insulation no they faff around and waste a lot of time putting in place a wholesale price cap which is nuts so you've you've got these kind of tensions these conflict conflicting issues if i was to kind of place a place a bet on it what i would say is that they will meet their targets but not in the time frame expected repower eu is very ambitious just go back to that 500 terawatt hours of extra renewable electricity is required but the trajectory so i think it's the trajectory is there it's just a question of the timing is uh I often have these conversations in Canada about the pace of tech, uh, clean energy technology change at the global level, because I don't think Canadians, my, my hypothesis is that Canadians are just too inward looking. They're not plugged into the rapid pace of change at the global level. And, you know, in, in Asia Pacific and in, in Europe in particular, and Assuming that I, that I'm right that that the technology is improving rapidly, it's scaling rapidly, it's coming down a cost quite rapidly. Does that help the uh, the EU get to where it needs to be sooner rather than later? Is that an argument for being more optimistic? I guess. Yeah, I th I think I think it could be because because you look at despite the problems I mentioned you have seen an awful lot going on in terms of wind farms and solar PV. I mean, solar PV, just to make a personal observation, I, when I take a train trip to the to different bits of the country and stuff, I see solar PV farms in English fields because the farmers, you know, they make more money from doing that. Oh, and by the way, there are subsidy levels, but they're not, they're not as high as they used to be. And as you may know, England isn't known for being the sunniest of countries. So, so, you know, you, you are, I mean, that is a really visible change that you can, you can see and wind farms are another aspect just, you know, but you have the challenges that I mentioned before. So I, th I think it is that, I think it really comes down to governments having consistent and, and clear policies and sticking to them. Now, I've, I've been doing some work in, in the UK on uh, the government's working on a subsidy model for hydrogen production in the UK. They've done a lot of really good work. You know, this, this is the civil servants in the Department of Energy. They've done a lot of good work. There's a lot of thought. There are issues. You know, there's discussion with industry. But, but that is, that's the, the bit for optimism um, rather than focusing on, you know, these headline targets, we're going to have this this target by this year. I think it's looking at the nuts and bolts, and there is a lot of nuts and bolts work goes, going on. Well, Alex, thank you very much for this. It's been a fascinating conversation, and we will continue to watch what goes on in Europe with the, uh, the growth of the hydrogen economy. So thank you very much for this. Not at all. My pleasure. Great talking to you.